0: Education and cultivation has definitely beaten the revolutionary instinct out of me. <laughs>
1: Left of Philosophy. I'm Lillian. Here with me today is Gil. Hello. Will. Hey there. And Owen. Hey, everyone. And we also have a very special guest with us today. I am very excited to have Dr. William Claire Roberts of McGill University with us. Um, Will Roberts is the author of Marx's Inferno, The Political Theory of Capital, um, which won the Isaac Deutscher Prize, I think in, in 2017. Was that it? So it's an excellent book. I really recommend everyone read it. We'll put it in our show notes. If you haven't, welcome Will Roberts. We are excited to talk about CLR James with you today.
2: Thank you so much for having me, everybody. Um, Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Should be fun.
1: Yeah, so the topic of the episode today is C.L.R. James broadly. We've read numerous things that he wrote over the course of a pretty wide span of time, like from the 1930s, starting with Black Jacobins, which is what he's best known for, and um, some of his later writing about American politics, which was very interesting, and an article that Will wrote about his sort of class theory and from those, those earlier stages to the later stages. So a little background, if people don't know who C.L.R. James is, I think a lot of people will if you're listening to this podcast, but C.L.R. James was born in Trinidad. He traveled to the UK, to the US. Um, Relevantly, he was in the American Socialist Workers Party and he is the sort of fertile ground upon which lots of um, innovations in Marxist political theory and philosophy began. Think some things that remain timeless. Other things, I'm I'm happy to argue about. Like he made he wrote a wonderful treatise on the um, relevance of an independent black political movement in the United States, which I think people continue to draw on for inspiration. He also wrote things about the theory of state capitalism, which I find somewhat less compelling. In 2021, but he really did a lot of intellectual work. So I'll just put. A few ideas out there for us to consider, and then some topics, and then I'll just throw it over to Will Roberts to sort of say what made him interested in CLR James. But you know, broadly, there's you know his theory of social class and class formation, um, his involvement with Trotskyist politics across the Atlantic, sort of his reclamation of the history of the Enlightenment and Republican politics. Um, and how the Haitian Revolution impacted and had a relationship with the French Revolution, which until he wrote his book was not widely acknowledged, you know, his theories of capitalism and and social change. So there's lots to get into. And hopefully we'll be able to hit on all these various points, or at least some of them at length. Um, So I'll just ask, Will, if you could just say, you know, what drew you to C.L.R. James now, um, what prompted you to write your essay, which is about his theory of political organization, his theory of class and and social social change
2: yeah um so i I uh, got interested in James in part because I I feel incredibly ambivalent about James <laughs> like i I and I wanted to work through some of that uh, some of that ambivalence so i'm I want to do a book project on the history of Sort of the history of history from below um, in the in the 20th century especially um, and the, the sort of conceit of the book project is so in the very beginning of the general rules for the International workingmen's Association that Marx wrote in 1864 the first line is like it opens with like that the emancipation of the working class must be conquered by the working class themselves right and and that claim that, the self-emancipation of the working class was going to be not just the engine for the working class um, emancipation, but was going to be the engine for universal emancipation, right? That the self-emancipation of the working class was going to yield a, a, a world in which there was no, there were no class distinctions. There was no form of domination or oppression left. And I I think that's a fascinating perspective, and I wanted to trace what happened to that perspective <laughs> um, and to that claim because I think it's something that was inspiring to lots of people, but but it underwent certain mutations um, and, and transformations over the course of the of the 20th century, and. So for example, and I think James is an interesting sort of way station along that that chain of transformations. So um, in the notes on the dialectic that we read, so this is from 1948, James says free activity means not only the end of the communist parties, it means the end of capitalism. Only free activity, a disciplined spontaneity can prevent bureaucracy right So this is this sort of perspective, like this was like James's own sort of twist on this. and it's what gave, I mean, it's one of the earliest articulations of what became autonomous politics, autonomous Marxism, um, the the claim that working class self-activity was the engine of both the emancipation of the working class and and everything else. and but notice there was a this shift in language, right? It went from it went from self-emancipation which it's not clear what that is uh, or what means it might, ha- might be realized by. It's a, it's a project that the working class is going to free itself. And that changes in James to free activity, like the self-activity, just the activation of the, the working class um, and their autonomous activity is going to, is going to free themselves um, and free everyone else. And that then, you know, that I think is an important mutation because I think, um, you know, so we read, uh, we also read, you know, uh, something that he co-wrote, the Spacing Reality text. We read an excerpt from that. And that, that's a text that he co-wrote with Cornelius Castoriadis and, and, and Grace Lee Boggs. And Cornelius Castoriadis, in his work with uh, Socialisme Bavari, uh, talks about the autonomy of the laboring people, or the masses' capacity for self-direction um, and that takes it in a particular way. Um, the Selma James text we read talks about working class autonomy um, as well. And I think all of this is sort of these these are way stations on the path to something that I encountered a lot in when I was in college in the 90s, which was you know the agency of the oppressed uh, right so that in some sense that's the that's the the whole length of this trajectory that I want to pass, uh, trace is from the self-emancipation of the working class to the agency of the oppressed, and I see James as a particularly important moment on that on that on that trajectory. So that's what drew me to him.
3: If I have your, your article right though, you don't see a real opposition or conflict in James's work between that more kind of bottom-up emphasis that tends to be attributed to his later work and whats er, what you know what's considered to be a kind of vanguardism or emphasis on leadership uh, in the earlier work. Could you maybe say something about the relationship between that early vanguardism that you, cl- that you claim? And I think there's you know good reason to do so that it never really goes away in his work uh, and this kind of bottom up, more democratically oriented.
2: Yeah. So the way I put this in the, in the paper is that I think for James, um, James is pretty consistent in his work that, that he thinks that leadership is important. Um, leadership of struggles is important. Yet at the same time, he's clearly an anti-hierarchical, uh, thinker. Like he, he wants to destroy hierarchies, um, and he thinks that he thinks that working class um, autonomy is fundamentally anti-hierarchical and and tears those things down. So, what's the, how do you have anti-hierarchical leadership? How do you articulate that? And I think that for James, the form that this anti-hierarchical leadership takes is a sort of that the leader is a mirror um, in which the masses see themselves, come to recognize themselves as uh, who they are or as, as, and as the revolutionary force that they are. So the, 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 the role of leadership is to articulate the autonomy of the masses, to articulate their um, agency, their, their, their self-activity, and in articulating that... Um, to give to the masses something in which they can see themselves um, and can see the principle that in fact actuates their own activity. And so that that becomes this, and this is the point of my article, it becomes a fundamentally anti-institutional theory of, you know, sort of showing the masses to themselves so that they can do whatever they want to do um, without you. Um, and I, I think that's that's the, the theory of leadership, the theory of revolution that en- ends up animating James's work.
4: I, I'm super interested in this question of leadership, but just so um, I make sure I, I definitely have your point, you know, um, and maybe this will be kind of annoying, but I'm going to go to one of my touchstones. This seems deeply different than, like, early Du Bois and his notion of a talented tenth. But so I make sure I understand what you're saying. So James isn't talking about the leader as someone who needs to cultivate the masses, right, to um, clean them up, to um, sort of drag them up into the the light of truth. Instead, you know, um, the leader kind of is is a place of concretion, for, you know, the masses activity of focal point, which you know, is completely different than what Du Bois is talking with the talented tenth, is he's saying, we need to clean up the black proletariat, you know, we need to, you know, shorn them of their, their, their bad habits, because they are active, but they're active in the worst ways. And so is that actually is that a difference than what you're describing, with James, the way I put it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It, it totally is. And obviously, you know, Du Bois is a complicated thinker with a long yeah. career and you can read Du Bois as, you know, moving over the course of that career, like farther and farther away from this particularly pedagogical um, cultivating uh, model of the talented 10th. But, but you're absolutely right to see James as in many ways the, the, the exact opposite. Because, um, and, and this came out um, in some of the stuff we read, like in his discussions of the, of the West Indies, you know, education for James is like, that's what destroys the revolutionary sort of urges um, of, the, of the proletariat, um, of the masses, right? Like, like yeah. education, uh, cultivation, training is the last thing that the, that the masses need for, for James. Right. Um, so there's a, there's fundamentally a sense of, you know, there's a sense of domestication in everything that James talks about, um, in terms of, in terms of education. Um, and, and I think this is something that has like, this is something that gets picked up on by other people, right? Like Cedric Robinson's black Marxism, um, like picks up on this and, and sees something really valuable in James in that, um, like that, that this is something that Robinson wants to valorize. Also, I mean, he sees like there, and there is a almost perfect uh, mirroring of Du Bois and James here because, while Du Bois says talented tenth, talented tenth, talented tenth, and and yet nonetheless sort of wants to work away from that, like he, you know, what, you know, actually he does have. A theory of self-emancipation, um, like in, in Black Reconstruction, um, and so forth, right? An anti-pedagogical element that's that's the counterpoint to this major major theme. You know, in, in James, you have the major theme, which is anti-cultivation, um, anti-education. You know, like something about the the spontaneous and untutored revolutionary capacity of the masses but James is also like an incredibly cultured person right? Yeah, right who 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 you know writes books about about Shakespeare about about um Melville yes yeah, yeah. like Melville. you know like he's just he's just an incredibly cultured guy um and and so there there is this sort of tension in James too where James is in some sense wanting to and and I think I think that this is something that uh, Robinson is is Keyed into, there's this tension in James, or James is sort of has a bit of that, s- um, like trying to overcome the cultivation in himself, um, in some sense.
0: If I can piggyback on that, I could, first of all, speaking from experience, um, uh, avow that education and cultivation has definitely beaten the revolutionary instinct out of me. Uh, it's <laughs> probably made me into a reactionary, um, which I'd like to struggle against, yes. but it's hard. Um, <laughs> But I see that. So like the, the value or sort of the, the impulse behind James's way of talking about leadership as this mirror that reflects the principle of the working class, which doesn't need to be educated. He says things like that the, the people in the West Indies uh, didn't need to read Rousseau to learn what democracy was. They learned it in prison. Right. Things like this. Like there's a sort of concrete lived experience way in which this uh, understanding kind of spontaneously and organically develops. Um, but you also, I think it comes up very early in your article, and then it's like one of the last things you say uh is that like, you know, this this way of reading the role of leadership presupposes that there is an immediate unity of class interest, uh, which is as like, so to speak, transparent to the working class. And like the 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 hesitancy or skepticism about institutions like parties is that they Kind of obscure this this immediate unity of interest by, you know, introducing all these other kinds of like mediating factors, but as you point out, like this maybe isn't something that we we ought strategically to or practically to presuppose. That this might be like a shortcoming on, on like the, on the other side of his like way of thinking about strategic organization and leadership. Is that do I have that right?
3: Yeah, and you and you end the paper by saying that common interests have to be constructed right? They're, they're not to be found kind of in immediacy being corrupted by all of these mediating factors, right? Right. Yes,
2: exactly. And, and I think this is something that I don't think this side of James is appreciated in part because James, and this is, this is especially true with um, the work of Selma James, like his, you know, longtime collaborator and partner, because of their embrace of autonomous black struggle, autonomous women's struggle, autonomous, um, you know, anti-colonial struggle, they can really seem like, and they're frequently taken up as thinkers of, you know, the class composition as the the sort of, like, the stitching together of many particular struggles into a broader struggle. But I don't think that's actually right, right? <laughs> I, like, I think that actually the way in which they affirm these particular local struggles and these, these autonomous organizations and so forth actually bespeaks their faith that it's, it's these as it were, grassroots, local struggles that are actually going to, uh, they're like the, they're the crystals that, that, that show the, the actual universality, right? (laughs) Like the pure universality is present in those. Um, And it's our, our duty as, as revolutionaries, as socialists, as proponents of emancipation to recognize those moments of universality and and identify with them in solidarity, um, so that so that you get this like sort of immediate eruption of of a universal interest um, right there.
1: I think that that's exactly what is going on, and I I do think that this I like that you phrased your interest in James as kind of a transitionary moment. So I'm going to sort of try out my thesis of like what makes it transitionary see what you all think about it so he seems to think that there's like an intrinsically anti-capitalist teleology to mass movements so like the way you're saying there's the crystal there's like the basili is, I think, the word he uses for it. So whenever a movement happens, the authentic truth of that movement is this thing that could express itself as a revolutionary subject. And the job of the political leadership, which I think earlier in his career he took for granted as being more of a party, and then he he falls, falls back from that, is to see that or that possibility that authentic truth and to kind of ex- give expression to it and then the masses will sort of activate around that and he even says that like if the pro if the leadership can't support it then what'll happen is like a repression ensues so the leadership has to to do this and I just it made me think that like there's a way in which he takes for granted the involvement of like class politics to this process because he has continues to have a sort of a dialectical perspective on history. He continues to be a materialist. He's, you know, he gives these lectures to workers. Like there's two things I need you to internalize. It's like these very basic like points about like, you know, Hegelian, like left Hegelian Marxism, um, which I find extremely, uh, charming. So, but then the, the problem is, is like when the faith, it goes away that like class politics are going to like deliver on these promises, then like, theorists and like intellectuals and and include and also political activists I think of the new left period you start to like you need a more radical subject position like the class isn't going to do it so you need to kind of like have Mm. a fealty to these like new social movements because like they're the kernel like and you're kind of like looking for like the like the revolutionary agency like everywhere and nowhere and and that's the true about like Mm. Selma James she's like the true revolutionary are like these women in the households, and I'm like, like I get the energy about that, but you know,
4: you get really? the vibe.
1: But- I get the vibe, um, <laughs> but I don't know, you know.
4: So. So yeah, so that that actually you know dovetails right into my 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 next question. I don't read James as a romantic, but when you describe the position this way, and by romantic I mean like romanticism, like you know, you know, the people in their instincts a they, they have this natural yearning that's tending towards the the universal. But it seems to me in another way that James isn't a romantic, one because he deeply understands the tragedy of how this can not work out, but two, I think this was in your your article but the instinct is only potential and so for James you know and I, I see what you're doing there uh Lillian why it's a transitioning point, but for James it seems like he wouldn't transition because he wouldn't break faith and he, even when it doesn't work out, he's going to say, "So we need to figure out why it didn't work out." But you need to follow, you know, the people where they are at in the, their relationship to the means of production. And so I'm wondering if philosophically, you know, even though he has this language of instinct, that doesn't mean that you know it automatically works. That you know, this is why I also think there's a tension between you know just only mirroring the people. So what allows the instinct that the the masses have to towards their self-activity to transition from potentiality to actuality. It seems like there needs to be another process that goes on because it doesn't happen in due course. He's, he's clear on that. And so it can't just be the leaders mirror back to the masses then, or is it that the instinct doesn't eventuate in freedom because the leaders cease to mirror um, as well as they can?
2: Yeah. I mean, I I think, So one of the things that is so valuable about James and that keeps me coming back to James, even though I think that I have pretty fundamental disagreements with parts of James, um, is that you can sort of separate out three tracks um, in James. So on the one hand, there is just this immense interest in narrating and tracing events, developments, etc. like there's this incredibly robust empirical interest in the world of workers, the world of slaves, the world of the colonized, um, etc. and and he wants to he wants to understand what's going on. And so there's this there's this really robust, um, empirical tracing, right? Just this this narration, right? Which which shows up in all of the pieces we read, just about right. Um, at the same time, there's also an analysis of that narration that is that is taking place, where where he's trying to not just narrate what's going on, but to but to really try to understand it um, and to and to explain what's going on. And then there's this like third thing, which are these sort of, in the um, essay, I talk about it as these sort of asides that he makes, or these these little like um, um, theoretical, what's the word, parentheses, scolia, yeah, yeah, like he uh, just like drops these little the things. Not the most today, man. Um, and there's there's uh, where
1: are we? Is everyone <laughs> secretly. Really
2: I'm never secretly.
4: not personally, but that's me. This is true.
1: Sorry, and, go ahead. and i just i
2: guess i just feel like like there he wants to also like have this like you know really philosophical you know very abstract level of discussion of of the conceptuality here and that is where i have my biggest disagreements often right like i actually i actually think that his asides about The you know highest level conceptual stuff are often I think where he reveals like a really sort of frustrating um, lack of conceptual clarity um, and lack of lack of analysis of the of the concepts themselves that he's that he's deploying and then that I think feeds back into his analysis right because then on the like on the basis of these, of these generalizations, he doesn't like, then his analysis sometimes falls short um, because of that. So I, I, like, I want to separate out those different, those different tracks. Um, and to, I like, I love how engaged he is. And that's, that's the best element of, of James, I think is, and that's where the faith in the masses really pays dividends. Right, and that's where it's really valuable, it, it, because it, it expresses itself as this desire to learn from what they're doing, right? Um, and desire to mm-hmm. desire to explore the world of the common person, uh, the common worker, and to and to inquire into their work conditions and and, and so forth. And like that's just wonderful. Um, and so I, I think that's that we I, it helps me to separate those things out because then it localizes my disagreements with with James. And allows me to to not because i want to I want to draw as much valuable stuff out of what he does as possible too, so
3: yeah, I, I think one of those concepts is that concept that we just mentioned, if, if we could return to it for a minute, that concept of disciplined spontaneity, because I think so much of of the project that he lays out in a couple of these pieces really, really relies on this concept right the the way that you can have non-hierarchical or anti-hierarchical leadership uh, is through this concept of disciplined spontaneity, the way that you can root your politics in the masses and not have it just be a kind of aimless, you know, a kind of aimless self-activity, but a self-activity with some directionality and some purpose is through this disciplined spontaneity. And I had a hard time finding anywhere else that he that he really tries to, you know, really do some go do some analytical work on that concept. So I was just kind of curious if you could say um, uh, if it's not putting us too far afield from where we're headed, um, say a little bit about that concept and how you read it.
2: Right. No, I, that's, that's really perfect because I think, <laughs> I think that gets to the heart of what I, it gets to the heart of my disagreements with, uh, mm-hmm. James because, and, but, and, but this is not local to James. It gets to the heart of why I want to, this goes back to my book, um, and my reading of Marx, but, um, Like, I want to resuscitate a Republican socialism, a a Republican Marxism that emphasizes non-domination as a conception of freedom, as opposed to what I think is the dominant conception of freedom in the Marxist tradition, which is autonomy, right? Um, Or, or, you know, a sort of self-direction. And I think that there are certain antinomies in the concept of autonomy itself that constantly you you can see, I think, James trip over those antinomies mm-hmm. um, because the the concept of autonomy and, you know, it, it obviously gets articulated in different ways in, in James, so... Uh, it gets articulated as spontaneity or disciplined spontaneity. It gets articulated as self-activity, um, et cetera. It gets cashed out in different terms. But in all of its various articulations in James, it's a fundamentally undecidable concept in the, in the following sense. So those little that short excerpt from the Notes it's on dialectic. He, in, just in that one little passage, he goes from talking about spontaneity as the free creative activity of the proletariat to talking about free activity as disciplined spontaneity. And that like that introduction of disciplined I feel like gives the game away, right? Because the introduction of disciplined says, well, spontaneity sounds like it could be just doing whatever you want. <laughs> but if, so therefore, I have to qualify it by saying discipline Indeed. spontaneity, um, and then but then I have to say that that discipline is itself a spontaneous discipline, right? It's a it's a sort of self-imposed discipline. Mm-hmm. It's, it's mm-hmm. a free discipline, and that so we're just we're just sort of chasing our tail around here, right? Um, mm-hmm. Like he wants to say that it is. A spontaneity in the sense of an ungoverned, right? Like an undetermined, a, a free activity, an activity that comes out of the self, um, a, a pure self direction.
4: But it's not imposed by, like, an it's not imposed by oh, okay.
2: anyone else. It doesn't follow orders. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't. It doesn't need to be given marching orders or a, or a, a plan, um, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. But it also can't be just whatever you happen to do.
4: <laughs> because- It can't be needs- just going out and getting an ice cream. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like we,
2: need, we, need a, we need some criteria to sort out like the good spontaneity from the bad spontaneity, right? And so he just kind of ties himself in a knot immediately right there and i think that's a problem right um there are other there are other places where this comes about too right so in the discussion of the west indies so this is like on page 41 he really emphasizes this again and again slaves ran the plantations slaves mm-hmm. ran the plantations slaves ran the plantations and his point is to say that you know the entire economy was dependent upon slave labor, and that slave labor wasn't just, you know, a sort of brute, unthinking labor that was, you know, just impelled from outside, but slave labor was specialized, it was knowledgeable, um, it, was, it was capable, right? So the, mm-hmm. the, the, the slaves of the West Indies had every bit of knowledge uh, necessary to run the plantations, you know, themselves, right? But in that, like, and that, of course, you know, that's, you want to say yes, of course, right? Like, the, the like, slaves are not just impelled by the lash, um, and they're not just, to be enslaved is not to be um, deprived of your mind, of your foresight, of uh, intentional action, or in, you know, modern parlance, it's not to de- be deprived of your agency, Right. (laughs) Like slaves are agents. Right. Um, And this is, this is Mm -hmm. something that we've all had drilled into us. Right. Um, And it's true. Right. But that doesn't mean they aren't slaves. (laughs) Um, Right. And, and there's, (laughs) there's this very. (laughs) Like imagine like for
4: like leaving that last part, it's just like, all of a sudden we forget that. Wait a second, but no, 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 no. Wait, they are
2: enslaved. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, the slaves ran the plantation, but they didn't run the plantations, right? They weren't, right, there, right. Yeah. They weren't right. there just doing whatever they wanted to do. <laughs> um and and more than that, the slave the plantation in San Domingo, you know, had a particular form that was imposed on it by the need to discipline. And it was imposed on it by the fear of the slaves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and by the need to, you know, get as much labor out of them as possible. Um, and so there's there's a very important sense in which the slaves did not run the plantation, right? Because right. the plantation would not have looked like a plantation if the slaves had run it, <laughs> right? Um, and this is this other side clearly comes out, like he's aware of this too, right? James... In in his discussion of the factory, um, in his discussion of Taylorism and Fordism, in that other passage we read, right? Uh, the excerpt answer. from State Capitalism and World Revolution, right? In his discussion there, like, he's very aware of the way in which, actually, if you give workers control, work is not going to continue in just the same <laughs> form that it did, right? And so the actual f- physical form of the factory the division of labor in the factory, the the tasks that people are undertaking in the factory, they have the character they have because the workers are dominated by something outside themselves. And
1: so are we all republicanism pilled yet? Is that where <laughs> we're at in the <laughs> I need
2: more
0: work. Um, but if actually if I I'm could, sold. Like, yeah Will's done. I like characterizing this as you've done Will as a set of antinomies that follow from this conception of, Mm -hmm. um, of freedom as, as autonomy. Um, and one version of this, maybe if I could like get us back to another, another aspect of James's work, which you highlight in your essay on the one hand, like he, he, in a couple of places in some of the readings that we did talked about this idea of like spontaneism or autonomy as being, you know, self-development internal organization right not not being coerced from the outside or following a developmental pattern that's imposed from without and so like this is part of what makes anti-colonial struggle necessary for for instance the people in san domingo for the um um and and so on right precisely as you said like the slaves weren't running the plantations what would the, the the sort of development of these productive forces look like if governed from within this social totality as an organized whole and not from without. But then the other side of the antinomy, though, is, and and I would like to hear you speak more about this, the way in which James sees internationalism as like a crucial part of what makes Marxism Marxism, what the sort of uh, class struggle has to be in order to not betray its own principle as class struggle. Why does James think that this is like a, a a fundamental feature of marxist analysis and of uh, class struggle in general why internationalism
2: right i mean so i think the the most general way to put the antinomy of that we were just talking about is the, the it's the antinomy of inside and outside yeah right exactly. um, and and the way james wants to find a way of demarcating inside from outside but doesn't I don't I don't think he really has the conceptual tools to to make that demarcation in a principled way. Um, yeah. um, so so the internationalism follows from the inside outside d- d- distinction because James is convinced James is in principle convinced that the proletariat wherever they are that's inside. That's, that's the, that's, that's a one, right? Um, uh-huh. that's, that, that's a unity. And so national borders don't matter for that, right? Uh-huh. They, they don't cut there. There's an, there's an internal relation between the proletarian in East London and the proletarian in San Domingo and the proletarian in Ghana. And that. Internal relation is the basis of internationalism, and it's the basis of worker autonomy in a in a robust sense. So the external relation um, is the relationship between the workers and capital it's the relationship between uh or between the workers and capital the capitalist and it's the relationship between the indigenous people and the colonizer right um that you know so that's an external relation that he can refuse um but the internationalism is simply about the imminence of the of the proletariat to itself
0: I liked the way that you articulated this in your article where you say that for James, the, the sort of decision that existential choice, as you put it, is between allying with the international proletariat or by making compromises with whatever form is taken by the national bourgeoisie. And those are like the only mm-hmm. two paths available for class struggle or for solidarity and collective action, that there's no form of refusing full scale internationalism that doesn't amount to a collaborationism
2: with your own national bourgeoisie. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, you know, that, that's obviously, that's a, that's a particular instance of this. Like that's a, that's a, that's a still very Trotskyist, um, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, way of putting the either or. Um, And, and obviously I think that there's a way in which, you know, when he's talking about the black struggle in the United States, when he's talking about the making of the Caribbean people, like, the particular vehemence in which he puts the the dichotomy that way, maybe it's harder to see that still pertaining mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in these other situations. Mm-hmm. But but maybe I don't know that 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 would be something I'd be open to other arguments about. I don't, I'm not I don't have a considered view on that. So.
4: Um, so something I just want to say really, you know, quickly, you know, sort of following from this inside-outside discussion is, um, do you think that there's also an aspect of James's work? I'm thinking of how the last chapter of Du Bois' Black Reconstruction in America is the propaganda of history. That, you know, in some ways, like, you know, he puts so much of this uh, starkness about self-activity because he's trying to counter sort of propaganda that, you know, the, the people in the Caribbean, they're not ready for self-government. I think you know he says explicitly making the Caribbean people that this was a lie until we we came to believe it, or that you know um, black people in the United States are just waiting. For someone to you know to tell them what to do, and so sorry to bring up this name, but in some ways I, I I do I think you're right. There's a there's a very delicate logic here that we can we can disagree with, but I say delicate because I see how the the bits fit together, even though it gets them into messes. But you know I sometimes think like yo know, Adorno's approach is through sort of this hyperbole and this exaggeration, and I wonder if partially James is doing this as well, where he's trying to say something like with the Black Jacobins. That the Haitian revolution it shouldn't seem like a complete anomaly to you because of course they were developing knowledge while on the plantation because they the plantation had the function which of course obscures the fact that they did not choose the plantation they did not you know construct it but they did learn how to work the machinery and you know, to work together and so i wonder if it's him like you're trying to push back a sort of counter tendency of making it almost impossible that any sort of um,
2: revolutionary struggle could come about
4: is that you know maybe part of like the literary end of
2: what he's doing here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and it and it's impossible not to affirm that, right? Like, like, like right. you know, he's got this other uh, essay called uh, you know Every Cook Can Govern, right? With, yeah. You know, like right. it's impossible not to love that part of James, right? The the like there is there is this you know hortatory. Rhetorical register in James that is saying, you know, you don't need to defer to anyone. You don't need to be led from outside. You are perfectly capable of of leading yourself. You are perfectly capable of governing yourself. Um, And it's um, it's a really attractive aspect to James. Um, And I and I certainly don't want to. um, I don't want to. Use it at all, um, mm-hmm. even if I. I also don't want to. You know, I think I think that governing ourselves can't, in the end, be the goal that we're going for. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I don't think that that can be the the final horizon for an emancipatory politics.
0: Um, we want to. We want the, the withering away of the disciplined part of disciplined spontaneity. <laughs> the withering away of
3: spontaneity.
0: Maybe the withering away of
3: spontaneity. Do you mean that we need something more than autonomy? There's some maybe material element or something that goes beyond that level of autonomy.
2: Well, or I, I think we need to we need to recognize that being like that being free is not the same thing as governing yourself, <laughs> um, and that we can be free in our relationships with one another and that that doesn't mean that us as individuals are our, our autonomous monads that only interact with one another in autonomous ways or that um, we, you know, thereby um, can, you know, form some sort of blob of a collective self <laughs> that is, um, it, you know, that Black. is self-governing. Um, like and that you know that's you know for james that is the horizon right that like a democratic a democratic politics is fundamentally a politics in which there's a unity between the individual and the state right Mm -hmm. and like i that that just i think that's a i think that's a dead end i don't think that we should think that that's what free life amounts to
1: i feel like that's such an interesting question about the difference between like self-government or self-determination and Freedom. I just wanted to say that, like, I I have when I was reading um, his arguments about, you know, the slaves ran the plantation and, and affirming um, the sort of conscious capacities and you know the the in co- the common way of looking at things that the agency. I kept thinking to myself, like, there's a way in which again this is like unequivocally true, and I f- have a really ambivalent relationship to the to this way of talking about things now because on the one hand there's like tons of political reaction and like conservative ways of looking at things that has not relinquished the view of oppressed people as being passive or capable of self-government and so i see in like radical scholarship this um this ongoing like rhetorical uh insistence on self uh these sort of self-emancipatory capacities it also tends like it also I don't know if it tends to it just seems to be what I, I observe a lot that like it also becomes like a valorization and agency in and it of itself that like whatever oppressed people are doing is intrinsically radical or intrinsically of resistance and I think when I was talking about mm-hmm. the transition period like I don't think that that's exactly what James is saying like at, actually at all but I do think in later scholarship it has become like the agency of the oppressed is in it of itself a mode of resistance and I'm like but it can't be like otherwise they wouldn't be oppressed there has to be like some kind of qualifier about like why this is not freedom and some kind of understanding of the kind of constraints that need to be removed and then what kind of constraints would be better on our collective life?
3: I, I agree with that. But I think he's pretty yeah. specific, at least in some of the the material that we read, that the vision of agency he has is, is agency at the site of production. Agency at the site of material production. So I don't think he would fall into a kind of... Uh, at least at this period of his work, that we were reading a kind of vague notion of just affirming agency as such, because even when he talks about the relationship between kind of autonomous, independent black struggles in the U.S. and kind of proletarian uh, working-class struggles, he's still, in affirming the autonomy of those independent struggles, right, wants to say that at a certain point, in order to yield power, they're going to have to find their way to the site of, you know, to agency at the site of production. They're going to have to find their way to, to economic power. Um, so I, I, I take his claim to be more specific than just like, I, I know you were saying that's more later scholars that, that fall into that. Yeah, and, Cause I'm and, not actually yeah.
1: saying that, like, that's what James is saying. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I think that that's not the part people have run away with. So they have picked up right
3: now. Y- yeah. Yeah. They've picked up more on the, just, yeah. The affirmationist mm. agency side. Yeah.
1: I think so anyway. Yeah.
3: There's also a,
0: a, a line that I thought was interesting in which we could to go back to this like problem of leadership and the the problem like he says at some point like with Leninism was that it needed Lenin. And you don't just have Lenin, you actually have all of the Bolsheviks and all that comes along with that. Like the mm-hmm. the the party that forms around it, uh, him, this sort of remarkable mirror. Uh, tends to take on its own sort of social consistency, begins to have its own kind of weight, um, develop its own sort of interests uh, that by playing this mediating role might actually like lead things astray. But he, the other thing he says about bureaucracy, there is a fascinating line, and I forget, I think it might have been in Notes on Dialectics, I don't remember which text, it was a later one, where he says that part of the problem with bureaucracy is that it can't help but replace like these issues about... Um, struggle at the point of production with issues about consumption. And so like the bureaucracy mm-hmm. will end up being like, oh, let's like worry about, you know, increases in, in the the minimum wage or access to education or um, you know this sort of thing. healthcare. Exactly. Right. All of which, you know, may well be, you know, fine or whatever. We might want those things. I certainly would like healthcare. Right. But like this doesn't necessarily affect the mode of social organization at the level of production, which is the thing that needs actually to be revolutionized.
3: Yeah, because those consumption-oriented problems don't touch on power, right? right. They, you can you can meet a lot of demands in the cons- in the area of consumption, and not have altered at all, right? The landscape of
2: power relations. And that, but but so, I wonder if that's okay. true. Sorry, yeah. I, 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 oh, that's, I right. that's, that's the claim.
3: Yeah, that's the claim. I think. Yeah, yeah.
2: No, I I, I agree yeah. that is the claim. And I, but I, I. This is one of the things that I think would require some further thought because, so for example you know, one of the things that, um, you know, keeps, you know, the worker, you know, riveted to the machine, right? (laughs) Um, Is Mm -hmm. precisely the lack of any sort of guarantee of life outside of that Mm -hmm. uh, employment relation, right? So I think there there actually is a way in which um, guarantees at the level of consumption, right? You have a, a, a right to healthcare. You have a right to housing. You have a right to um, enough food, etc. Right, a, a right to a livelihood. Actually, does that fundamentally alters power relations at the site of production? Um, because the power relations at the site of yeah. production hinge upon um, the the you know, the desperation or the, the need right. of the the worker to somehow or another get the stuff that they need to, to live. Um, and right. therefore, there's deprivation needs of, of subsistence. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So,
1: but also, like, think about, like, healthcare is a good example, though, like the difference between the American healthcare system at its best, and like a single payer insurance or, or healthcare, national healthcare system. The reason that Marxists and, and the socialist left in general have always supported the state to be fundamentally involved in these universal programs and reforms is because even if your employer provides your like the access willingly, for, for whatever reason, to the means of subsistence, the difference between your employer doing that and the state doing that is that the state doing it means that if you get fired... You're, you know, you don't continue like the threat of not having that important resources isn't there, but also you're more able to like have autonomy in your like collective organizing and so on because you can mm-hmm. just be like, fuck you, like mm-hmm. I don't have, like I don't yeah. depend on you for my healthcare, I don't depend on you for these things. So, I do think it does. I don't know if this matters for James at all, actually, but the the consumptive stuff. I think maybe this is why, like, I, f- I fundamentally feel more sympathetic to. Like you know the trade unions and the social democracies and and so on of the world than I probably did when I myself was a trotskyist or that james James does
4: yeah. I mean, you know, it seems to me like you know, uh, at least part of the you know, um, autonomy stuff in, in James is he, he wants to constantly be wary of how um, conditions of dependency can sneak their way into emancipatory projects. So I'm thinking like you know, bureaucracy mm-hmm. can start to become a weight on what it was supposed to free the people from by becoming oriented towards its own continued existence Rather than the ideals, it was you know brought into uh, existence to combat. And so, uh, you know, the question I have for you, because as you you were talking, especially with these sort of contradictions with leadership and bureaucracy, you know, before we start officially recording, I said I've, I'm I'm studying up on the history of Marcus Garvey and you know the UNIA. And one of the big reasons that failed was because of its mode of leadership that it was overly invested in Marcus Garvey the figure. It was top heavy. It was you know whatever his Apprecious wants and, and, and needs were even if he was an interesting thinker in his own right, which is fundamentally different than what was actually happening at the local charters, you know, um, you know, in, in the South and all of that. But that was too much of a of a weight to survive his uh, eventual fall. And so my question is, you know, I see like you, know, if the state takes care of it, then it's a, you know, you're no longer dependent on your employer in this sort of like you, know, they can fire you arbitrarily. But you know, we would also need to uh, develop a set of institutions such that we are not overly dependent on the state and its whims. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it would have to like be a way of uh, articulating states such that it's responsive to our activity and understands itself as needing to be responsive to it. And that it seems to me goes looks like something that goes beyond simply having elections every two to four years, right? <laughs> You know, I wonder if what James is, is, you know, what he keeps trying to suss out is that kernel, that instinct can never go away. And so I wonder if that's more, I know he wants it to be descriptive, but I wonder if that's more prophetic or hopeful. He's more, he's more like trying to speak it into being rather than it being the case. I wonder if that is something that's useful here.
2: Yeah, I. I it might be. Um, and I, I guess I just think, yeah, there's... So the, obviously, the problem of bureaucracy and the problem of mm-hmm. bureaucratization is something that lots of people have wrestled with this uh, uh, in, uh, in, throughout the 20th century. And James, James is not the only one. I think James has some interesting things to say about bureaucracy, although you know you might think that. I guess my my thought is that there there's a way in which I think James's discourse about bureaucracy lends itself, even if it doesn't entail, it lends itself to a sense that participation in government is the only solution to bureaucratization, right? So that that mm. fundamentally bureaucracy can only be sort of undone by ramping up participation of ordinary people in the provisions of government, right? So that government really becomes all of us doing all of the things that government does, you know, collectively together, etc. cetera. Um, and I, I'm, I'm skeptical of that. <laughs> like in part, because I, I guess I think you do want there to be checks on bureaucracy, but I also don't, I think that there is a, there are ways of ensuring that the bureaucracy can't just lord over you right? And, you know, everybody knows the, that, you know, there, there are ways <laughs> in which the bureaucracy can lower it over you, right? Um, but I think we can have checks on that that don't necessarily involve um, getting rid of that level of Impersonal administration—that actually, I think that can be a valuable thing. Um, You know, a little impersonal administration (laughs) is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, um,
4: sometimes I want you like.
2: Sometimes you just (laughs) want there to be like a regular procedure that everything goes through, and that and it's all just it's all just sort of set. Um, and you don't, you don't want to have to negotiate everything all the time, um, um, in these, in these more participatory ways.
1: Will's like, I don't want to go to more meetings.
2: (laughs) Don't make me. That's a hellscape. Yeah, I I do want, I do like (laughs) meetings. Like meetings are important. We need to have meetings where we deliberate, um, and hash things out. But we also, we also don't want just all meetings all Mm -hmm. the time. Um, Right. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. no. No, dear God, no. That, that
4: actually makes a lot of sense to me. Because I do think maybe, and you all can check me if I'm wrong, but like some of the ways, even uh, in our current moment, the ways that we talk about freedom is only about participation only about being involved and and all that which being involved is great but it can make it seem as if the end of all this is that we're all just running from meeting to meeting for the rest of our lives in these (laughs) ungainly like coliseums and like oh my like does that sound like utopia to anybody And so I think it actually is helpful (laughs) the way that you put it, because that frames the the conception of freedom that, you know, that maybe James is missing or the way it it can tend to, especially every cook can govern. It shows that there's a substantive difference between making participation itself the telos rather than non-domination.
0: Well, I mean, Marx did say, right, that like, you know, in the in the emancipated society, uh, everyone would be able to go to a meeting in the morning. Go to a meeting in the afternoon and then go to a meeting in the <laughs>
3: evening.
0: <laughs> this is true. Yeah, I Zoom, seem to yes. remember
4: it's buried in a footnote in capital volume two. But <laughs> yeah, no yeah, one reads yeah, volume I, two. Yeah, exactly. and, the, volume. and the forces
1: of production will evolve to the point where we will actually be doing it virtually and we won't have to see each other in person at all. It's actually what he wrote in the footnotes. <laughs>
4: Marks prophetic. from the Grave is just like, yes, <laughs> yes, indeed are the pandemic, but yes, this. <laughs> yeah, I'm starting to feel like he
3: was right when he said that the good life for a modern citizen is impossible. <laughs> <laughs> oh my
1: God. That was That's like my one of James, my. Eh? Yeah, that was like one of my favorite things that I read this time around. Like when he said that capital controls us, we don't control. This was actually, I think, one of his more Republican moments, I would Mm -hmm. say. But he specifically locates like fear and anxiety is like the thing. And I'm like, yes, I do think that is how we feel currently right now, all the time. And indeed, (laughs) good life is not possible currently either. Um, And he was like, this affects us far more than we're consciously aware. And I was like, "Mm mm-hmm. I think it's pretty conscious. I
2: mean, it's funny. Like this, you know, this was obviously like this is a. I I love that that little bit, right? Um, And Mm -hmm. it's one of those things from the mid twentieth century that it just hits different now, right? Because you know at the time they're thinking you know and you, you get the same similar passages in like arend right or something where they're thinking about nuclear holocaust yeah right and like that's oh, not forgot. really at the forefront of our minds anymore right we're, yeah. we're thinking we're thinking about <laughs> you know uh you know we're thinking about global warming and the collapse yes. of the ecosystem and and covid and these sorts of things um but it yeah, re- but it's yeah. but it it makes it even more palpable right and that that line about how the problem for centuries was to master nature, but not so today. The problem now is to figure out what to do with the mass of accumulated wealth and scientific knowledge, which we have built out of nature. Like that's the problem.
3: And which are driving us toward world suicide, which, again, also hits different in 2021.
1: I'm <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm, like, screaming right now. Cause it's, it's, it's
2: beautifully crescent <laughs> stuff. It's really... really world, it's, like, world so crazy that in, like, different. 1966
1: yeah. this was true. And, like, we're I reading... I feel like neoliberalism <laughs> put us into a lull where everything is, like, you know, we're finding the agency. We're all working for nonprofits. The internet is booming. We're doing well. And then now we're, like, totally tanked. And now we're thinking, okay, well... You know, maybe we should think about other other things.
4: Yeah. While the Internet was doing well, it turns out the ecological system was collapsing. We were literally the dog in a house while the house is on fire saying this is fine. But we were non-ironic. Now we're like post irony.
1: So I think that does it for us today. Um, New episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks, wherever you get your podcasts. Please like and subscribe and write a review if you can. Follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil. And if you like what we're doing, consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash left of philosophy. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time. Uh-huh. Bye everybody. Thanks Will Thank Robert. Thanks a lot Will.
4: <laughs> Thank you so much. Bye.